3: Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is
0: false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it.
3: Well,
4: Welcome back to CounterPoints Friday, actually on a Friday this time, not CounterPoints Monday or Tuesday, but actually on Friday.
5: We even did a Wednesday. We still haven't done a Thursday.
4: That's right. Okay, so we're coming for Thursday. Thursday's not safe from us. We'll stay away
5: from Saturday and Sunday. Um,
4: that's right. Also, our first CounterPoints Friday with a live studio audience of one— that's right. <laughs> My mom is sitting about 10 yards away from us, and she is going to be some, somewhat of an ombudsman every time Ryan says something socialist about unions or the economy. The
5: audience has been prepped not to boo too loudly. <laughs>
4: yes, there won't be any booing. Uh, but that is, it, it is sort of fun to have a, a little live studio audience. not
5: sure why she has a little bucket of tomatoes there. <laughs> But (laughs) I think we
4: might find out. She she brought eggs. (laughs) All right. Well, our first topic today, we're going right in on the midterms. Um, And I want to put this uh, sot up because Peter Ducey from Fox News pressed President Biden at a news conference this week. And I think the question he asks and the way Joe Biden responds opens up a bigger discussion about what's happening in the midterm elections. So let's go ahead and roll a one.
2: Top domestic issues, inflation or abortion. All
0: important. important. Unlike you, there's no one thing. It crosses the board. Domestic, ask me about foreign policy too. There's a multiple, multiple, multiple issues. And they're all important. And so, and we ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. You know that all expression? Thank you.
4: All right, Ryan, can they walk and chew gum at the same time? There's been a lot of chatter in the Beltway Press over the last couple of weeks about whether Democrats have sort of uh, handicapped themselves by focusing so much on the abortion issue because they felt they had the wind at their backs after the Dobbs ruling that this was going Mm -hmm. to help them eat away at what was going to be a really positive turnout for Republicans in the fall with a bad economy. Um, But is that actually the case? Do you think that's actually what's going on? Or do you think uh, the Democrats really are walking and chewing gum at the same time, meaning that they can talk about both of those issues and they can target ads about abortion where it'll matter um, and, and maybe not so much elsewhere.
5: I, mean, I think Biden is right in the sense that people contain multitudes. Right. Like the idea that you have to choose between you know, all of the different things that you care about. Like, mm-hmm. well, I care about inflation, therefore I don't care about abortion. Or, hey, I care about abortion rights, you know, pro or con, therefore I don't care about inflation. It's a question of salience and it's a question of what moves people Two things, what moves people to vote or not to vote and what moves people to switch sides. And pundits might, we'll find out on election night. Uh, I'm not terribly optimistic about Democrats' chances, but they have overperformed in basically every special election that we've had since the Dobbs ruling. Uh, Overperformed polls, overperformed expectations. And if they do end up overperforming, it will be because uh, people... When they were asked what is the most important issue, they say, Well, inflation. Like mm-hmm. every single day, I'm wondering uh, for two reasons. One, uh, the, the infl- I hear about inflation you know, on the car radio when I'm driving around, and I know that that's going to impact my 401k, which I've watched you know, 20%. You know, a lot of people have 401ks. A lot of people have watched their 401ks nosedive. That bothers them, even if they're not going to retire. You're for 10, 20, 30 years. It's like watching, watching that happen gives you anxiety. Secondly, seeing prices rise. Mm-hmm. Spending hundreds of more dollars a month that you don't have on things that you need.
4: Gas prices are going back up. Gas
5: prices are going up. Like, so, so when you're asked what's, what's the issue that's most important to you, you're going to respond to that. Also, there's tons of polling research that what the media is talking about then comes back to pollsters as the top issue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Around the deficit, for instance. Like, nobody says the deficit. It used to be the number one issue was the deficit. Did we solve the deficit? (laughs) Is the deficit gone? Deficit's not top 30 anymore.
4: Isn't it amazing how that works? Because
5: the media doesn't talk about the deficit. And so people sometimes view these polls as quizzes. What's the correct answer? (laughs) Well, I hear all the time about inflation, so therefore the correct answer to your question that you're asking me, I'm smart it's inflation.
4: Well, it's also just the conditioning, right? If you sort of exist in the media ecosystem as all of us do now, like you can't really Mm -hmm. tune it out. If you have social media, whatever, you're being bombarded with it. And that sort of conditions, that that is the conditioning. I don't think people need to be conditioned in this case to worry uh, immensely about inflation. Same
5: with with abortion. And that's where the wild card could come in. Because you could have a sizable number of people who are not a majority, uh, you know, it's not, it's not going to turn up to be the number one issue, but so many people are going to vote on that issue that that might throw off these polls is the point. Because even if it's only 10%, like, boom, that, that flips the apple cart of all the all the punditry.
4: Well, so that actually also explains the way the parties are spending because we we talked about this earlier in the week. Midterm elections are uh, largely about turnout. So if you Mm -hmm. are a a party consultant and you're engineering election strategies in Ohio, Pennsylvania, wherever it is, Nevada, perhaps, you're saying, how do I make sure every Democratic voter actually goes out and pulls the lever for a Democrat? And then it's also your job to bring in independence to the polls. And this is from an Axios report. It's from the Wesleyan Media Project. A university-backed political ad research group finds that the top issue mentioned in ads in Senate races across broadcast TV nationally from September 19th through October 2nd was abortion. Um, and you can see where in the aggregate, you're, if you're asking Joe Biden, can you walk and chew gum at the same time? The real question there are is: are Democrats focusing on abortion to the detriment right. of inflation. And that is absolutely a real, a real question. Um, but if, there are, if they're doing it smartly... <laughs> And if Republicans are doing it smartly, and it, when Republicans run ads, this isn't just about Dem spending. This is also about Republican spending. Um, if Republicans are doing it correctly, it's also as a motivating factor saying Mark Kelly supports no restrictions on abortion. You know, if that's the, if that's the Republican line, that's what you want to be doing, not sort of blocking and tackling.
5: Yeah. I, last night I watched the, uh, the Jim Bognet matt Cartwright uh, Debate is in Northeast Pennsylvania. Fun
4: night in the this Grim is, House. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I mean, it, this is it's my it's my favorite congressional race. Uh, we, maybe we can talk about it more next week. Uh, Matt Cartwright is, you know, an old school populist Democrat, and and watching him kind of parry uh, the the inflation blows from Bognet was what uh, people on the left would love to see every Democrat do. He would just hit him back. He's like, look. And even he even used the line that you hear on this show and elsewhere when uh, Bognet would talk about Drag queen story hour. Right. And he'd be like, look, here this guy goes with the culture war stuff again just to try to distract you from the fact that his big donors are making record profits and profiteering and driving up prices.
4: Which was kind of how that Katie Porter video went viral this week. Uh, did you see the Katie Porter mm-hmm. video talking about? Okay, so, the and, and again, that's true. We're going to talk a little bit about, in my monologue actually, about culture war and, uh, versus kind of economic issues and how, in my opinion, they're, they're often overlapping more than people realize. But to your point, it's incredible how Democrats don't pick up on the messaging of Cartwright. Like, why mm. the National Party doesn't do that? Is it because He's they're new— He's actually their
5: vice chair for messaging or something, but they're not still not listening to him. Yeah. yeah.
4: But they really aren't running yeah. like that. Is, right. is it because they're a cozy new relationship with the Chamber of Commerce? I shouldn't say new. It's not entirely new. Um, I mean,
5: a lot of them don't want to offend their own donors, I guess. Right. Yeah.
4: Well, or they're yeah. running in um, suburban districts maybe where they don't want to be uh, accused of being socialists or something like that.
5: Something. Um, so <laughs> so it's not working. So we, let's pull up a two here, which is you – know, so 538 flagged on Twitter yesterday that Republicans, after trailing for a very, very long time in the generic congressional ballot, ticked up by one-tenth of a percent. So they're, they're now up. By one tenth of a percent in mm-hmm. the generic ballot, that is obviously not statistically significant, but the direction is significant. Like the, they have, they have been trending upwards. Democrats have been trending downwards uh, as you know. As we get closer to the election, and actually ballots are already out, so we're in the midst of the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- typically, the president's party starts to lose momentum heading into the you know the people that are still on the fence at this point, oftentimes swing over towards Republicans. And the, the polling is so bad that it's, it's really hard to know. You know, if, if you are yeah. either party at this point, if you're Republicans, you want to be up a couple points because Democrats have overperformed in all of these recent races, although you have a gerrymandering, you know, and geographical structural advantage where you, if, you know, if, it, if there's a flat 50-50 vote, Republicans win the House. Right. Uh, if you're Democrats, though, you look at all the polling misses, in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, uh, else in Michigan, Ohio, all of, all over the country, you're like we need a much bigger margin. Um mm-hmm. than than we have right here,
4: right, well, and they're up th- like three point four in the aggregate, uh the r c p aggregate as well, three point four points um, and that's it. It, it it wasn't always that way. it's the trend is going higher as of the last couple of weeks. The gap is getting higher as of the last couple of weeks, and yeah, it's 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 partially that it's also partially where the money has gone, you know, after Labor Day, people start spending big money in in some of those races, and that. What happens, I think, downstream of the money coming in is that people sort of realize what their messages actually are and have to be. Right. And as that kind of congeals, you see the efficacy of it. Um, and gas prices are not helping Democrats right now at all. Um, right. Obviously, inflation is a broader issue, but I think specifically um, gas prices went down a little bit. And that, when the congressional uh, – when the generic ballot was a little bit tighter – gas prices were a little bit lower. Um, and, and so all of that sort of drives people mm-hmm. in different directions.
5: And to the point I was making earlier about uh, inflation being a concern relative to the markets, too, let let's put up a three here, mm-hmm. which is you're getting, you're getting signals uh, from the Federal Reserve that they're not happy that their raising of interest rates has seemingly had so little effect on, uh, on inflation. And so th- they're signaling that in their next several meetings, they're going to continue Raising interest rates are going to until they push it well over 4%, and then they're, and they're going to leave it there for most of the rest of the year. And this actually goes back to the conversation that we were having with Matt Stoller and Dave Dayan, but I guess two weeks ago now, mm. where Dave Dane was making the argument that, okay, if it was true that raising rates was actually going to deal with the drivers of inflation, then okay, then let's have that conversation. If this tightening, that was going to do that in some way other than just massively ratcheting up unemployment, let's think about it. I think what, what we're seeing so far is evidence that Dan so is, is correct at this point, that the drivers of inflation are not the things that you can manipulate with tightening or loosening Fed policy. If, if, if it's supply chain driven, if it's drought driven, if it's driven by uh, the war, if it's driven by sanctions on, on Russia, if it's driven by OPEC, cutting uh, the amount of oil that it's producing. The Federal Reserve monkeying around with its, you know, its its Fed funds rates isn't going to affect any of that stuff other than you know, savagely depressing the economy and throwing so many people out of work that eventually, as a knock-on effect, those, those prices come down. And so- what what you're seeing here is that they're like, well, I guess we're just going to have to keep doing it, and maybe then it'll rain in California, or maybe then the war <laughs> in Russia will end, or maybe then the, you know we won't we won't see, be seeing heat waves in India mm. or like, it, it, they feel like they're so divorced from the reality of the economy that they don't recognize this uh, something that Brad DeLong in his recent book was uh, was pointing out, which is that you, if you think of uh, inflation. Uh, you know people talk about it you know heating up if you think or, or a fever like if you think of the purpose of a fever like a, f- a fever and you know so and and this is this is kind of the new medicine that the pe- uh, pediatricians have been telling us like if, if the fever is below like 101 100 or so you know let it run because the fever has a purpose
4: rub some dirt in it yeah.
5: yeah rub some dirt in it you let it run for as long if it gets higher then then you need to seek like serious intervention. But if it's running at 100, 101, there's a reason the body's doing that. The body is heating itself up so that the heat then, you know, is an immuno response and, and pushes down whatever the problem was and beats it. So if as soon as you see a little tiny spike in, your, in a fever, you take, you take Advil, then that allows the virus to just, oh, sweet. <laughs> no immune response. I can, just, <laughs> I can just rock and roll here for a while. You'll feel better. And so inflation is a signal to the economy, that something's off. In the early part of the pandemic, the inflation was a signal that the supply chains were completely broken. So you can either then invest as a society and, f- and figure out a way to fix those supply chains and then bring that fever down, or you can just dump a bunch of advo, which is saying, well, the problem is too many people are buying things and people have money because they have jobs. So therefore we need to throw people out of work So then when they don't have jobs, they won't be able to buy things. And then that will fix the supply chains. Except you didn't fix the supply chains. You still have your same supply chains. So that the next time then you have economic growth again, yeah. you're going to have another supply chain crisis because well, you never fixed it.
4: That's our entire economy. It's like Band-Aids over Band-Aids over Band-Aids mm-hmm. that are often crony Band-Aids, but it's just like Band-Aids layered on top of other Band-Aids. And that's why when people say we have this like wonderful free market system, and I'm talking about people on the right, um, no, right. <laughs> we have a, a wonderful free market system but uh, for cronies. Uh, but the other thing I was going to say to that point is in this case, it is somewhat complicated by the reality that to invest in the those fixes, the spending can be inflationary too. And so it's it's just a kind of a lose-lose, being you're between a rock and a hard place, basically.
5: And so it, if that 538 uh, forecast of a you know point 0.1% advantage for Republicans in the midterms comes to be, you're going to have a Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And if we can uh, put up B1 here, Emily Chichensky has a uh, profile of Kevin McCarthy just ran in in the Federalist so you know tell tell us what what was your impression of uh, Kev- of Kevin McCarthy.
4: You know, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with Kevin McCarthy. Remember, he is uh, the—he's a young gun, right? Remember that hilarious uh, mm-hmm. photo shoot and book with Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, and Kevin McCarthy. That was incredible. From 2010 or 2011, it looks like a Men's Warehouse ad. Um, and so he was—he sort of came up under Boehner, under Ryan, very much an establishment fixture. Who is now on really good terms with Jim Jordan. He is now on really good terms with basically the entire Freedom Caucus. He's on decent terms with Donald Trump. And so here's this question of of how did this establishment fixture navigate the Trump era in a way where he emerges as the last young gun standing? He's the one uh, that managed to actually have really good relationships with people like Jim Jordan, Donald Trump, while also having good relationships with the establishment, continuing to have a good relationship with the establishment. It's an interesting question. And it's not to say that Kevin McCarthy is is brilliant or dumb, although Politico ran a piece earlier this year asking, is Kevin McCarthy a dummy, Uh, like a giant? dummy is he a dummy no he's not he's and and i think that's really what's interesting here is that like he he's very savvy um and he's such a people person, that the Republican caucus feels very heard by him, which goes a long way when you need to sort of unite people and get all of their votes for speaker. So all that is to say, we are likely to see a speaker, Kevin McCarthy, in the story, I have a Freedom Caucus source basically saying that is not done and dusted, is what he says. You know, Politico also had a piece saying, Kevin McCarthy, Freedom Caucus is totally behind him. I don't think that's the case, um, but I think he's going to have to make some concessions. In the story, Rachel Bovard talks about how Nancy Pelosi basically— (laughs) blew up a lot of precedents. And by her own admission, she said we had to blow up those precedents essentially to deal with the threat of Trumpism, to deal with the threat of uh, the insurrection, et cetera, et cetera. So that means Republicans want Kevin McCarthy to fight fire with fire. He's going to boot Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell from the Intelligence Committee. He's going to boot Ilhan Omar from Foreign Affairs if he is Speaker, if Republicans win. Um, He's not ready to talk about impeachment yet. That's one thing that has a lot of people on the right kind of riled up. They, they wish he would come out guns a-blazing and go for uh, Mayorkas, go for Merrick Garland. Um, he says he'll do it if, if something occasions impeachment. But he's, he's really walking a tightrope and he could slip and fall at any moment, but he's been doing this for years and I think it's worth paying attention to.
5: What do they want to do Garland for? The letter about the Parents in Virginia? Well,
4: that's – yeah, to start but with the, that, yeah. <laughs> and then really all like, of the other FBI corruption. Uh, oh, FBI corruption. Stuff? Yeah. Okay. Gen- generally, it would all come down to FBI corruption.
5: Gotcha. Um, you, you had an interesting anecdote about Jim Jordan uh, because it it is – and I think that a, a lot of liberals have not picked up on the fact that Kevin McCarthy has really ingratiated himself with the right. And so they keep thinking, oh, he's not going to be able to handle the right. It's like, no, actually – if you follow the caucus or the conference, it's so annoying. that It's a Democratic caucus and a Republican conference. The, the Republicans in the House call themselves a conference. Democrats are a caucus. And actually, they're...
4: I call them a caucus, too, though.
5: There is a, there's, a, there's actually a supposed to be a meaningful distinction between the two. A caucus is supposed to vote together where a conference is like people who are... Conferring. Conferring, right. but are still individuals. But th- they're not, no. actually. A they're, they're a caucus now. So let's call them a caucus. <laughs> so the the Republican... Caucus is actually pretty, you know, united behind Kevin McCarthy. It seems at this point, as Rachel said in your piece, uh, the Freedom Caucus doesn't really have the juice mm-hmm. to take him out. You had a good, you had this interesting anecdote about Jim Jordan, and how uh, he kind of jammed him onto the. Uh, oversight Committee against yeah. the wishes of of the committee. How, how do you do that, and how what's been what's been the fallout from that?
4: Yeah, it's, there hasn't been fallout, which right. is what's so interesting. It's like he he tells the story about how after Jim Jordan ran against him for Speaker, he said he called Jordan up. I think they were freshmen and congressmen together. He called Jordan up. Jordan was working out at the gym, and Kevin McCarthy said, "Listen, you got to get down here. I need you to be oversight chair. You're the best person for the job." It's
5: work hours. What are
4: you doing? Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't just, know. I don't know what was in the steer. What, I don't know what hours the steering committee keeps. So, <laughs> but uh, Jordan comes down and gives his presentation to the oversight committee or to the steering committee, and they erupt, is what Kevin McCarthy said. The the steering committee erupted in a negative way. Kev- yeah, yeah, on Kevin McCarthy for bringing Jordan in. McCarthy says, "You elected me to lead." Let me lead. Sticks his neck out for Jordan. Jordan does uh, what, just by all accounts, everybody on the right believes was a great job in oversight. And uh, Kevin McCarthy sees that as a real success point. Um, and that's a, J- Jim Jordan is really his bridge to the Freedom Caucus. But as we talked about with Ken Buck uh, earlier this week, that bridge could—it's possible that bridge could break if the Freedom Caucus gets annoyed enough with Jordan um, over their disagreements on big tech stuff. Who knows if that happens, but it's another thing to watch out for. Um, but yeah, I mean, Kevin McCarthy has been very intentional. He is not Paul Ryan. He is surely not John Boehner, and that's an interesting point that you raised about how on the left, um, I don't think people recognize how sincere— it's another story from the piece, which very quickly he talks about, Jim Jordan talks about, and Kevin McCarthy talks about, how that first impeachment— of Donald Trump, um, they did not lose a Republican mm-hmm. vote. And they've they've lost Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney on January 6th stuff. But that's pretty remarkable given where we know Republicans are sort of behind closed doors when it comes to Donald Trump. Right? Um,
5: and also when it comes to sending weapons to Ukraine and national security behind closed doors, exactly. which was that what that impeachment was about.
4: Exactly. And so for him to be able to do that was a feat. And Jim Jordan talks about how that really brought the conference together. Um, McCarthy saw that as a moment that really brought the conference together. The way I described it, it's like when you're on a high school field trip, like maybe you're going somewhere big and fancy and something goes really wrong on the trip and everyone becomes best friends. <laughs> Because it's like trauma bonding. Um, That's basically how Republicans would describe their experience with the first impeachment, keeping everybody together. And that is strategically a testament to McCarthy's leadership. Now, uh, to your point, Ryan, he had some interesting comments this week uh, to Punchbowl where he said, we're basically not going to be giving a blank check to Ukraine in January mm-hmm. because people are seeing a recession. They're they're going through a recession. They're dealing with high levels of inflation. What they're not going to want to see from us is a blank check to Ukraine. This gets blown up into a whole thing about how Republicans are now this like isolationist, um, Jacksonian mm-hmm. party. Um, but what did you make of McCarthy weighing in on Ukraine, especially with the news that you wanted to discuss briefly um, about Kherson?
5: Oh, right. So, uh, so we, there, there isn't a there isn't a development yet on this uh, this incoming uh, battle of of Kherson, but uh, UK- the Ukrainian government has now kind of put out put one, put a blackout around all of their operations around the the Kherson region. And they're telegraphing that there's going to be a major assault on Kherson in the next uh, in the next several days. It could be could ha- could start today, mm. as far as we know. It's 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 running along the same pattern that as we saw with with their you know with the assault with the assault on the eastern front. What was that a month ago or so? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kherson is the only kind of regional capital that uh, Russia was able to take. Uh, Putin has declared uh, martial law there. He has uh, you know illegally annexed. The region, and if they, if it falls so quickly after that, it'll be a huge blow uh, to Putin and the the authorities who are currently controlling Kherson have have urged all civilians to evacuate so that they can uh, fortify the city, you know, bracing for this coming assault. And so it it does feel like this could be a, a battle that uh, that that's, that tells you where this is heading. Mm-hmm. That if if they get repulsed. And then they head into a winter with, uh, you know, most of their power stations out and with, and with uh, Europe uh, growing growing sick of, of their own kind of travails at the expense of this war.
4: Yeah.
5: Uh, and if you have McCarthy, oh, McCarthy right. take power in January, Putin may feel like, okay, I've got this. I can just, if I can just hold on, I've got this. If they take Kherson, uh, then the rest of the war seems foretold in a way.
4: Tell me uh, more about that.
5: That... From from there, you, I could just see everything just collapsing. Dominoes. Yeah, I mean, because if if they can't hold their the most significant piece that they grabbed, right. Then what? Then you know they you keep saying, well, you, you see you see kind of uh, you know supporters of the Russian war effort saying, you know, don't dismiss this this war. They know they, they, they seized thirty percent of territory, and well, and they still hold twenty percent of territory. And then they're gonna be like, well, they hold eighteen percent of, they hold fifteen percent they hold They hold ten percent of Ukrainian territory and at that point you're like morale is so important mm. that you can if you see which direction things are going, then you could imagine uh, these different uh you know these these different fortifications just saying you know what
4: i'm not not here for this well and on this point. A really interesting—this is from Morning Consult, which says their their tracking, quote, shows the share of Republicans who say the U.S. is doing too much to halt Russia's invasion of Ukraine has doubled from 13% to 27%. So
5: 27% of people say— the U.S. is doing too much.
4: That was from March to May, so those okay. are somewhat outdated numbers. But you can see that doubling really quickly, and that's uh, very, very interesting. And that's where you start to see this creeping into Republican rhetoric right. and perhaps into Republican policy. Now, Mitch McConnell is very hawkish and mm-hmm. is all in on sending a lot of money to Ukraine. Um, obviously, if Ukraine is able to, uh, you know, have a bulwark uh, militarily, that's coming from heavily, heavily coming from U.S. Right. funding, and so it's heavily reliant on their ability to persuade, to have Mitch McConnell persuade, you know, a Republican party or a a Kevin McCarthy um, to to be on board with that. And and to your point, Ryan, one thing I always see happening in Washington is you can always make the case for the next step, the next spending, Mm -hmm. uh, the the next increment, and the next bill, because this is about Cursone. And if Cursone goes, then you have a domino effect. And that's— Something the Republicans are going to have to deal with, I think.
5: and Or they might not, because I could see a scenario where in the lame duck, let's say uh, Republicans have taken over both chambers or they took over just the House. I could see in the lame duck, uh, Pelosi, on her way out, sitting down with Schumer and McConnell mm-hmm. and saying, here come the crazies. Like, let's write a blank check. Well, or not, not necessarily a blank check, but how about another $50 billion? Mm-hmm. Like, that should... Get absolutely. Or another $100 billion. We're not going to spend it all, but here's $100 billion that's available. I could absolutely see that yep. happening. And all it has to do is get through the House. Yep. And then once it gets to the Senate, like you said, McConnell uh, and enough Republicans. You've, you've got people like Portman and Blunt and other oh, yeah. rep- retiring Republicans. That breezes through. And then McCarthy uh, it, it can say he's not going to send any more money. It won't matter, which actually probably would be his preference. Like if you could, you know, if you could speak to him completely privately about it, he probably wants to send money there, but doesn't want his fingerprints on the money. Because if you notice, he said— special
4: interests want us to spend money in Ukraine, yeah. yeah,
5: and and so do a lot of the hawkish donors in the Republican Party that are left. The base doesn't necessarily want it, but a lot of the donors
4: that do. may be changing. But you're and right. Some of
5: that, yeah. right? Some some do, some don't. But but it, you, you notice his phrasing. So we're not going to send a blank check. Yeah. that's different than saying we're not going to send money. We're
4: not going to send a check. Is a different? Right. yeah. We'll
5: send a check, and 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 it is it is shameful that uh, a that, that that there have not been strings attached. That there has not been oversight put on this money. We're going to see we're going to see these weapons, uh, you know, all over the world, mm-hmm. um, and you're going to see enormous amounts of it skimmed. You're you're also obviously seeing enormous amounts of it fired at the Russian military and at their positions. So it's not as if nothing's being done with the weapons. Uh, but so McCarthy, I think, would still sign off on significant military yes. aid, but there would be like money for the IG.
4: There's basically right, there's basically evidence that there are cracks in the foundation that really has not had cracks in it. You know, Pat Buchanan, I don't think, really put cracks in it, um, but m- maybe tiny little hairline fractures that are now uh, opening up into cracks in the sort of neoconservative foundation of the Republican Party.
5: There was a quote that you, that you were highlighting earlier. What was who, who was that from about how you're never going to have a hawkish Republican Party again.
4: That's exactly why you yeah. should stay tuned for the next segment because oh. it is indeed in the article that we are about to talk about. Um, Excellent.
5: Stick around for that.
4: Well, that's right. We can start with it right now. It is uh, if we can put C1 up. This is a story that was in a, a very long and in-depth kind of profile of the Republican Party's uh, struggles with those cracks in the foundation that we talked about in the last segment. Um, when you you start to have people like Kevin McCarthy saying well, we're not going to send a blank check to Ukraine, which, as Ryan points out, is different than a check. So the headline here is, the neocons are losing, why aren't we happy? Ryan, the quote um, that you're referencing, uh, that you referenced in the last block, comes from Kevin Roberts of the Heritage mm-hmm. Foundation, who's saying that, I'm par- and I'm paraphrasing this, we are unlikely to ever have a Republican, a hawkish Republican president again because the movement has shifted. And he's quoted in the New Republic article as saying that. And let me just read one quote that I think encapsulates the argument of the New Republic piece. Um, it says, the Jacksonian mo- moment is coming. In preventing overreach and curbing the default hawkishness that still predominates in Washington, This is a welcome development, but with their hostility to alliances, diplomacy, and internationalism, the Jacksonians may make U.S. foreign policy unnecessarily ruthless and selfish while making new enemies and destroying some of our greatest strengths." Uh, from somebody on the left, do you share those concerns about creeping isolationism? And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. On the right,
5: I'm f- all for right. isolation. <laughs> let it creep. Let it creep as much as it can creep.
4: Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say that.
5: Jackson. But why do they go to Jackson? Why do they go to Jackson? Jackson. It's like, always Jackson. Jackson became president, you know, because he like disobeyed orders and like invaded Spanish Florida. Like that was the thing that like kind of put him. On the map uh, he, his his like absolute genocide of the Native American population was central you know to to his entire political rise and so did he? So he, like, didn't go to war with Britain or something? And I mean, so that, like, counts as, like, he didn't go to war with Mexico? He, he left all, that for other people?
4: He's just always been that avatar of... And so they call when, him an
5: isolationist?
4: When, right. When neoconservatives want to punch at isolation, the isona- like isolationist right, they go to Jackson.
5: Oh, the neoconservatives go to Jackson. They yeah,
4: when there. they want to, like, create a, a sort of uh, straw man, they go to Weird. Jackson.
5: Why don't they go to La Follette? The, like, <laughs> Actual yeah. <laughs> Republican isolationist. That,
4: You're asking the wrong person.
5: Weird. Well, he wasn't okay. president. No, he wasn't president, but he, yeah, he was, the, he was kind of the leading isolationist Republican in the early part of the 20th century. Who, that, and that movement was really kind of smashed to bits by World War II. Yes, yes, um,
4: it sure was. And it,
5: and it took until Pat Buchanan, really, to start kind of showing some green shoots
4: Well, and it did. And this is, I think, a bigger question about, we lose perspective on how new nuclear technology is. And the very immediate, urgent new threat that nuclear technology posed to uh, the world, not just North America, not just the European continent in the mid-century, right after World War II, informed what became neoconservatism. And this isn't to endorse neoconservatism. It's merely to say that it's Pretty understandable at the time that if you have um, missiles in Cuba, uh, there's sort of a, a real reason to present, to, to, to deter that and to be doing preventative action and the sort of Reagan idea of peace through strength, of building up to the point where you are deterring uh, the use of nuclear weapons. Because, at, I mean, we had children doing nuclear, like, mm-hmm. things under their desks, like doing nuclear, um, Emergency drills under their desks. And uh, now
5: we traumatize our kids just with shooting drills.
4: We, we yeah. traumatize them in so many ways now. Um, it, but yes, that is among many ways we traumatize them. And, and so the, the sort of broader question of neoconservatism, I think, is more understandable with that aperture. But at the same time, um, right now what we see is the wreckage of decades of neoconservative policy in it, around the world, not just in the United States. Of course, not just in the United States, very much around the world. And uh, with that in the rearview mirror, uh, mirror, this new sort of nuclear threat emerges at a, an entirely different uh, context.
5: And it is interesting that you're seeing this kind of populist isolationism emerge in a similar cauldron as it, as it did... A hundred years ago, you know, the the wake of the Gilded Age, mm-hmm. like we're we're in. A, oh, that is interesting. Everybody everybody says we're in a second Gilded Age, uh, and so it would make sense that the characteristics of the first Gilded Age would be reproducing themselves here, and you could see why. In the first Gilded Age, you'd, you'd say, "Look, it, any war that's being fought right now is being fought on behalf of the, the plutocrats, mm-hmm. the, the J.P. Morgan, the mm-hmm. Jace. The uh, it would, same plutocrats today would be the ones that." People would see themselves as fighting on behalf of
4: arguably much worse plutocrats today, yeah. if it's possible.
5: I don't know. I mean, those were some pretty bloodthirsty plutocrats back then, and also it's it's a it's what what they're capable of getting away with.
4: Yeah, that's like a, I think, a, yeah, that's very true.
5: So they're you're constrained a little bit by by their by their era. Uh, so yeah, uh, that I think that's a significant part of it. That again, the like collapse of the social contract mm-hmm. results results in uh, people then not trusting. Their leadership, and if one like decent outcome from that is that they don't want to join those leaders in wars, okay, I guess we could, let's take that.
4: Yeah, it's uh, that comparison is really interesting because what we pejoratively refer to as isolationism now, when it came to the First World War, was pretty much public opinion, um, and mm-hmm. it took a long time. In, in and right, both- Wilson
5: ran on he kept us out of the war.
4: Right. Well, and you remember and when George W. Bush ran yeah. on keeping us out of foreign conflicts? What was the phrase that he used? Um, nation building?
5: Right. We're not going to do nation building. Just yeah. to destroy nations. Right. So he kept that promise. Right. But he, did, <laughs> he did not build any nations.
4: We will not yes. be building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's a, that is a really interesting comparison. Um, and there was this huge influx, obviously, of European immigration around the time of the Gilded Age, which informed why people didn't necessarily want to be entangled in foreign conflicts as well. There was like a lot going on at that time. But this this kind of hubris of the post-World War II order was informed by a really strong economy and a very strong post-war economy that was built on a war yeah. in so many different ways. And there's nothing like that right now um, at all. If anything, it's we've been spending so much money in the defense sector abroad um, that we have you know, empty sort of, our, our, we have a tattered social safety net here. Uh,
5: one piece of fun tri- trivia to finish off this block. <laughs> uh, to your point about uh, immigrants and war, uh, the, the way that World War I was sold was through anti German hostility. Yes. And so there was tons of propaganda against beer mm-hmm. because beer was considered to be German. And uh, uh, prohibition came about you know, significantly as a result of all of the propaganda against Germans to get us into World War I. They're like, well then let's just go ahead and ban it all.
4: This isn't trivia to somebody yeah. from Milwaukee, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> the, the whole history of the German beer movement, uh, it's it is pretty interesting.
5: Wisconsin always went first uh, with, with Social Security, with socialism. unemployment, with socialism. Okay. Um, did, they, did they ban? They didn't ban beer first though. Right. Oh, too many Germans. I I
4: right? highly doubt that. Yeah. We were actually the last state I think to give in to the twenty one, the federal twenty one drinking <laughs> age. Um, and they did that with uh, they they the highway it, money. The yeah. highway money, yeah, federal funding for highways. Uh, you really had to poke at us to get us to yeah. <laughs> go along with with have, that fascism. Have, yeah,
5: we'd rather have potholes than not allow our eighteen year olds to drink.
4: Hell yeah! yeah. <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, moving on to a much more serious topic. Actually, yeah. we have some. Disturbing footage out of Florida that Ryan and I know you want to show. Right, talk
5: about. yeah. The, so the Tampa Bay Times uh, obtained uh, body cam footage, and uh, we of uh, uh, the arrests, uh, and they po- posted three different arrests. We're going to play a, a couple of them here of people who are being charged with voter fraud. And as you as you watch these videos, you're going to see that. Uh, what you're looking at, to me, feels like state entrapment. Uh, these are people who, you know, there there was a there was a referendum that allowed that restored felon voter rights in Florida. Uh, the DeSantis administration attached uh, a bunch of different uh, conditions, and uh, that that made it so that you weren't automatically allowed to come back in. It also held exceptions for uh, murder and for uh, sex crimes,
0: mm-hmm.
5: and so. But the entire thing is so confusing because of all the different red tape that was thrown up around it. Uh, you'll see one of these people, the DMV, just said, hey, you, you, can, you can register to vote now. They, these people all got voter registration cards from the state. They were on the rolls. They went to vote. And then uh, the state goes and, and rounds them up. And so I would encourage people to watch uh, these clips before they jump and comment mm-hmm. and say something asinine like, well, if you don't want to get arrested for voter fraud, don't do voter fraud. Watch it first. If you still want to say something asinine, watch it first and then and then say it. So let's let's roll some of this.
4: I have to go to first parents. Nothing like that. So a bond. I
1: didn't do it. Okay, so ma'am, we have a warrant for your arrest. For oh, what? Good. How are you, sir? Right? Oh my God. Hold on. Ma'am. Wait, wait. Let me
2: tell my husband. Wait, wait. We, we're no, we telling him. Put, He's put, right put here.
1: He's right here. So if you could put your hands behind your back, please. Oh my God. Do so not move.
2: ultimately, ma'am, you have a warrant. Okay. The warrant. Listen, on. hold on. Listen. I know you're. You caught off guard. I understand. Right. So you have a warrant. It's for voter fraud. Okay. Hear me out. It's an R O R. You know what R O R is?
1: Oh my God.
2: You go in. You get booked. And then they're gonna release you from booking. You can go
1: right you're out. You're
2: gonna be right back out. Okay. Right back. Out. Right back but on. you have a warrant.
3: Okay. Yep. I'm like voter fraud. I voted, but I ain't fraud
1: commit no fraud.
2: Well, yeah, so th- that's going. the thing. I-, I don't know exactly what happened with it, but you you do have a warrant. That's what it's for. Okay. Oh
1: my God!
2: Yeah. So I don't know what
4: happened with that, but
0: yeah, uh, I got out. The-, the guy told me that I We're really to go vote for out Cosby on my time.
4: Yep.
2: But the warrant was just made uh, yesterday, so I'm I. I- the to too yeah, ago. I know. I I, I don't know, ma'am. I honestly couldn't tell you. Okay. So I gotta t- I gotta do some paperwork, and uh, the quicker I can get the paperwork done, the quicker I can get you there. Okay.
3: Hey, unfortunately, you got a warrant out. Okay. Warrant? Yes, sir. Want to put your hands behind your back for me? Yes, are Oh well, no,
2: but when I no one ever really explained all that much. Too many told the guys when they came out here that I was at the, the driver's license place getting my new <laughs> driver's license. Yeah. The guy there asked me. Says, "Hey, can you?" Walk? I guess he says, "Hey." vote? I said, oh, I'm, you can phone. I'm pretty sure I can. He goes, well, are you still on probation? I said, no. Uh, I got off probation like a month ago. He goes, well, then you can probably vote. Hey, just fill out the form, and if you can vote, and they'll let you give you a card. If you can't vote, then you won't. And I'm like, all right. Then there's your defense. You
3: know what I'm saying?
2: I
4: mean, I that sounds like a for to me.
2: Uh, well, we can vote.
5: It's because of the sex offender thing that you can't vote. So, I mean, the warrant is for the voting deal, I guess. But
0: I guess it's kind of all tied together.
5: Coming in. Yeah, I guess they're doing like some kind of roundup thing or something for all the ones that were
4: within the county. Yeah, I had to do one of these this morning already. Oh, really? Uh, do you know the for I, it doesn't say it on the. Let, let's walk what? over
2: to my car. Okay. y'all doing this now? And, and this happened years ago. I don't know. I, I have no idea, man. This is crazy, man. Y'all put me in jail for something I didn't know nothing about. Why would y'all
5: let me vote if I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to vote? So those those are uh, officers with the police force that Ron DeSantis created called the Florida Office of Election Crimes and Security. It was part of, uh, I believe, 18, 18 arrests. Uh, DeSantis followed it with a press conference. Like, this was a clearly a coordinated sweep. And I think what, like, my posting of the video and us doing it here uh, is what Ron DeSantis wants. I think he wants to... Chill, uh, the get out the vote operate. like he wants. He wants people to be afraid of voting. That if they go out and vote, there's a chance that they don't really understand the rules. And yes, there was a felon, uh, there was a a felon voter restoration law, but it's complicated. And so maybe you actually can't vote. And so if you know, is it really is it really worth it? You really want to go out there and vote because you might wind up uh, getting handcuffed. I saw like th- this to me it was just, as I said on, on the post, just struck me as just deeply evil to like, y- you want to play your culture war games in a press conference or whatever, you know, do your, do your culture war games, but to then bring it to people's front steps, f- put them in handcuffs when they thought they were able to vote, and also to do it in a way that is completely unbalanced. Like, there were, there were a couple uh, Republicans that were in, I think, South Florida who were caught um, voting twice on purpose they knew they voted twice. I remember that. Yeah. Right. And what did they get? Like a little community service or something, or they got they had to go to a class to, to teach them not to vote twice. Like they they are not getting charged with felonies.
4: Mm.
5: Uh, I don't know. What what was your take on this?
4: So I mean, the the law I believe is very clear that you have to have intent, um, and the intent is what comes through the lack of intent is what comes through on all of those mm-hmm. videos. And so I think it was something like 20 people were arrested in this as one of you, you heard one of the officers say some kind of roundup right. um, is, is what he said. And, uh, you know, that, that question of intent is, is clearly an important one. Um, if you were listening uh, in the podcast format, this was a video from the Tampa Bay Times and they put a text over it at one point that said everyone who, <clears throat> who was arrested was given a voter registration card. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one man in particular, he was saying he was he he was at the DMV right. getting a new driver's license. And somebody said, hey, you probably can vote. Um, and, and he even
5: raised, well, I'm not. I'm, I'm pro- a felon. Are you a, are, I'm a felon. Like, well, you, you know, as long as you're not on probation anymore. And that was the guy who had a, a sex crime. Mm-hmm. And, and look, those are not sympathetic People, uh, you know, you're no, you, you went to prison for a sex crime. That doesn't make you a sympathetic figure. Well,
4: these, these yeah. figures are all people who went to, to prison for murder and sex crimes. Right. Everyone that you just saw there. Right. The woman. And, yeah. Right.
5: And which, which is a, 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 an old, an, an, a tried and true tactic of, the, of government forces is to try to find, if you're going to try to violate a sacred principle, like the right to vote, uh, you're, you're going to find the least sympathetic character so that people will then not stand up for that person. It's one reason that uh, when governments around the world, and particularly the United States government, wants to crack down on press freedom, they go after Julian Assange. Mm,
4: mm-hmm.
5: Because the rest of the news media is like, well, we don't even think of him as a journalist. We don't like him. Uh, he's, and he's a jerk. Like, personally, we don't like him. Right. And so then people will say, well, I'm for press freedom, but that guy's a jerk. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to stand up and defend that person because... I'm, Screw them, right. and then boom—you're you're, you're, just—you're just allowing their, your rights to be chipped away at. Mm-hmm. You don't—you know—governments don't take don't target the most popular person mm-hmm. when they're trying to roll back your rights. That's why it's so important if you're standing up for a principle that you have to defend it even when it's unpopular.
4: Exactly. Um, judge me by how I treat the least um, yeah, among us, go. and that's a, a key principle, obviously. But the other thing I would I would add to this is. I've, it's very frustrating, and I don't think it's even tactically smart. The Republican focus on voter fraud, um, so this idea that you have illegal uh, people that are like intentionally voting illegally, as opposed to I actually think there are s- serious questions about ballot harvesting. I think uh, there are serious questions about the the way that billionaires, Democratic billionaires, poured money into, especially the 2020 election, with this operation that was, you know, made it easier for all of this to happen, laid the groundwork, as Mark Elias did in states like Wisconsin, um, to have the money sort of smooth the path mm-hmm. for Democratic candidates. I think that stuff is actually very worth talking about. I think it's very worth talking about just the, the basic sanctity and the security of a person going in and casting a secret ballot. All of those yeah. things, very legitimate uh, room for inquiry there. And the security
5: of our... You know, voting tabulation from foreign Uh, hacking. A
4: hundred percent. Yeah, Yeah, using especially as we like gravitate towards new technologies. Mm -hmm. These are, I think, these are very legitimate uh, areas of inquiry. When it goes into stuff like this, um, listen, I don't know that this is. I don't think this is going to hurt Ron DeSantis one bit. I don't think there's a a a political, a real political liability for all of the reasons you just listed. Um, But I also don't think it's it's tactically a a good use of uh, either a, a good use of your political resources or. Or even just your, like, resources as a state. Of course, I don't think that. But I don't think it's a good use of, like, your political capital mm-hmm. either. Um, and so it's it's just very frustrating to see people get caught in the mix.
5: Yeah, and, and this is the second time that one, that one of his stunts has involved kind of fundamentally transforming the lives of just normal people. You know, because there's still an ongoing investigation about the way, you know, how did he— how did he get these Venezuelans in in Texas onto a charter plane? Although uh,
4: that I think is increasingly vindicating. I'm following that investigation very closely, and it is increasingly. I think it's increasingly vindicating for Desantis. so maybe we can do a segment on this um, in the next week or so. But uh, I mean, it was pretty clearly all voluntary and going to Martha's Vineyard, pretty clearly that was communicated um, as far, the more we learn about it as far as we know. What I'm still curious about is whether there was false information um, given to people about, you know, guarantees of housing and work.
5: But, and also the money that he got from the Florida legislature to do this was for uh, people who were in Florida illegally.
4: Yes. Yes.
5: Texas is not Florida. So yeah. like, so he had he had to what fly them into Florida?
4: He did do that. So he
5: went so he flew them from Texas to Florida. It's He's a like, stunt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now they're in Florida. Now I can spend the money on it. So it's like
4: A hundred percent a stunt. Bro. And yeah, and I don't know the, the where the bulk of his resources in this election security um like what a force have been spent. Um, but that's like exactly the thing that you you risk sort of going over the line when you do these stunts to the point where like, well, okay, now you're just wasting taxpayer money. Um, and politicians, I'm coming at this from the perspective that politicians engage in stunts, um, period, mm-hmm. no matter who they are. Um, and just sort of gauging this or, or grading this from the, the, like, the pure, like cold political strategy perspective, that is absolutely right. where you risk like really pissing people off. Yeah,
5: and I'm saying a stunt is one thing. Don't destroy Regular, oh, gosh. regular civilians' lives who aren't in, involved in this. Absolutely. So a firestorm around a Boston University research paper has exposed dangerous gaps in public oversight of the type of research that has the potential to spark new pandemics. So the controversy began when the UK's Daily Mail reported on a public preprint describing BU research that took the spike protein from the highly contagious Omicron variant of COVID-19 and attached it to the more virulent earlier iteration of the virus known as the Washington State variant or the wild type. Now, we covered this controversy earlier this week, but since then, BU has really dug in, and it's worth examining their response because it's a window into how unresponsive some in the scientific community have been to the public's very real concerns about the safety and wisdom of some of this research. So the researchers infected 10 mice with the newly created virus. Eight of them died. After the news broke, The public controversy took an unusual turn with unexpectedly sharp public comments made by officials from Anthony Fauci's NIH division, NIAID, directed toward the researchers. The agency told Stat News they would have reviewed the research had they been alerted to it and that a probe was now underway. BU responded with a public statement that rejected the notion that the researchers had any obligation to alert the agency and said that while NIAID was thanked for support of research that built the groundwork for this project, this particular research wasn't directly funded by NIH, therefore there was no disclosure requirement. Now, the extent of the misleading information included in Boston University's defense of its research and its lack of transparency serves as evidence that the public health community either does not recognize the severe blow its credibility has taken the past two years or feels that it is immune from that loss of credibility. A closer look at the statement reveals the distance still left to go to regain trust and guarantee a safer research environment. So let's take it piece by piece. So the statement's first claim is this. They say, first... This research is not gain-of-function research, meaning it did not amplify the Washington state SARS-CoV-2 virus strain or make it more dangerous. In fact, this research made the virus replicate less dangerous. Now that, according to Dr. Mark Lipsich, who is director of Harvard's Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics, is preposterous. BU's claim that the new virus is, quote, less dangerous is a reference to the fact that the original virus killed 10 of 10 mice, while the lab-created virus killed just 8 of 10 infected mice. But the key there is that the mice were deliberately infected. So while the pathogen was slightly less lethal in mice, the expected result of attaching the more effective Omicron spike protein to the Washington state virus would be to make the original virus more infectious, If many more people or mice get infected, that result overwhelms the tiny decline in case fatality rate. So here's Lipsitch. These are unquestionably gain-of-function experiments. The wild-type backbone virus gains immune escape from the insertion of the Omicron spike in ways that the paper describes in detail. That is gain-of-function. Now, because the research was being done on viruses already in circulation around the world, the risk of creating a dangerous novel virus was actually kind of low but the false claims from BU are important because they reflect on the inability of researchers to self-regulate, Lipsich noted, which means the government needs to step in with more rigorous oversight. He said, quote, the statement from BU is disturbing in several ways. First, it denies that this is gain of function. It is gain of function. If meant sincerely, this is disturbing from the institution that did the research because it provides prima facie evidence that institutions are not equipped to self-regulate, unquote. So next, BU makes the following claim. Secondly, the research was reviewed and approved by the Institutional Biosafety Committee, which consists of scientists as well as local community members. The Boston Public Health Commission also approved the research. Okay, but in fact, according to a BPHC spokesperson, the researchers submitted their proposal, and it was approved by the Public Health Commission in March 2020. Now, of course, there was no Omicron in March 2020. Therefore, quite simply... The research that was actually performed was not, in fact, approved ahead of time. Various experts have made this point publicly, though there's no need for me to quote them here. We all understand, at least on a very elementary level, the nature of time. Now, Boston University's statement then explains why it was not required to inform NIH of what it was up to. We fulfilled all required regulatory obligations and protocols following NIAID's guidelines and protocols. We did not have an obligation to disclose this research for two reasons. The experiments reported in this manuscript were carried out with funds from Boston University. NIAID funding was acknowledged because it was used to help develop the tools and platforms that were used in this research. They did not fund this research directly. NIH funding was also acknowledged for a shared instrumentation grant that helped support the pathology studies. We believe that funding streams for tools do not require an obligation to report, unquote. Okay, but according to the BU researchers preprint, they said, quote, this work was supported by Boston University startup funds, National Institutes of Health, NIAID grants, they list the, and then they list the grant numbers, uh, and then they, the paper also acknowledges support from the Boston University Clinical and Translational Science Institute, and they list the grant number for that as two sets, five grants. Now, microbiologist Richard Ebright noted that of the five grants acknowledged, only two were for equipment and three were for research. One grant provided $750,000. Another one gave CTSI $4.6 million for clinical research, clinical trials, and supportive activities, and the third gave $437,000 for research titled Regulation of Host Innate Immunity Against Viral Infection, unquote. So even setting aside the dubious argument that public funding of the tools used to do research doesn't entitle the same public to knowledge of what research is being done, and setting aside the false claim that no gain of function was involved, even on its own terms, the BU claim that only tools were funded is called into question by those three grants. After I sent those grants to BU, Rachel, uh, Rachel Cavallario, a BU spokesman, told me, quote, the link you shared is a different paper research and is the tools and platforms referenced. But as Lipsitch explained, if the research grants don't describe the precise research in question, that fact should not get BU off the hook. But instead, that fact is actually evidence of the way the system is broken and in need of reform. The second reason they cite as excusing them from reporting obligations is a repeat of the claim that no gain of function was involved. We already dealt with that claim.
4: During Kamala Harris's clumsy presidential run, she used to talk about her 3 a.m. agenda, which she described as a plan, quote, focused on the issues that keep people up at night. Whatever consultant came up with that was actually onto something, even if their idea was wasted on a doomed candidate. Millions of families are waking up in the middle of the night or sitting at the kitchen table after putting the kids to bed, trying to figure out how to make it all work. That's a quote from Kamala Harris in a 2019 op-ed that argued her plan included, quote, solutions that will have a direct and immediate effect on people's lives, paychecks, and health care. Again, The consultant's onto something. It's important that our politics are indeed focused on solving the immediate problems of everyday Americans, not on uh, trumped-up media-friendly conflicts used to emotionally manipulate voters. Of course, there's really no getting rid of that emotional manipulation, but responsible actors in politics and media should seek to cut through all that noise. So what are 3 a.m. issues? Surely now it's the full slate of economic pains, gas prices, food prices, health care, student loan debt. For the average voter, abortion is likely not front of mind as polls open around the country. And yet, take a look at this video from Dearborn, Michigan.
0: We want to leave the politics out of this. If you're on Facebook, all you see is fear-mongering political rhetoric that this is book banning, censorship, homophobic. All it is is protecting our children. We, we as concerned parents, we as concerned parents in Dearborn are not tied to the left, to the right when it comes to this issue, and we're not going to be used as pawns for any organization for their own agenda. We're here to protect our children. Do not fall for the political rhetoric on Facebook, on Instagram. Do not fall for the trap because that's what they want. They're trying to smear us. They're trying to control the narrative. They're trying to say this is homophobic. Listen, there's a, there's a book. There's a book that was banned. It was called This Book is Gay. And I tell you, if the book was called This Book is Straight, we're still gonna go after it. Because it's teaching kids, it's teaching kids how to go online and have sexual intercourse with others on the internet.
4: This is wrong. The title referenced in that speech is called This Book is Gay by Juno Dawson. I'm going to read a positive community review from the, prog- from the progressive Daily Coast, which compared the book to other LGBT books aimed at teens. Quote, Juno goes a bit further, though, offering specific and practical advice on how to find and meet like-minded people for socializing and sex, the reviewer notes. Some of her advice is tailored specifically for teenagers in high school. She frankly describes the different ways gay men and women bring their partners to orgasm. She includes illustrations not of sex acts, but a body is less graphic than those in fun home and genderqueer graphic novels that feature in other book banning attempts. Okay, so like those books, this book is gay has been the subject of parent protests. Here's the section of the book the dad referenced in the viral speech, which reads how sex acts apps work. You can see on the screen, um, it's basically an instruction on how to get on a sex app and meet someone. Here's another section that provides instructions on how to perform handies and blowies and much, much more so is this a dumb culture war blow up or a 3 a.m issue in another part of his viral speech the father turned protest leader in dearborn said people have been warning him that if he speaks out they're going to protest your businesses you're going to get fired from your job i've got three children my purpose in this world is to protect my kids and that's all i will do and nobody will stop me that's what the dad said. Now, hundreds of members of the Muslim community in Dearborn have come out to school board meetings since September organizing to keep their kids from accessing books like Dawson's. This is where more culture war issues become 3 a.m. issues. If you're worried about finances, for speaking out against a book that provides your 14-year-old with what reasonable people would agree is unhealthy sexual instruction, then this culture war issue becomes an economic one as well. None of that is to say cultural issues can't keep people up at night without also being economic ones. It's merely to point out that we often too too often think of culture and economics as mutually exclusive areas. This is not an isolated local issue in Dearborn either. This is happening in communities all over the country and with more than just this one book. These questions played a role in Glenn Youngkin's upset last year in Virginia. Parents care about this. For understandable reasons, they take issue with the content of the book and the ease of access for their children, who are already very difficult to protect from violent internet porn. The idea that a public school could be undermining their best efforts at parenting is obviously infuriating. Now, check out this headline from the Washington Post. School board meeting cut short as protests over LGBTQ books grow unruly. right, so much of the news coverage has included basically no information about the content parents are objecting to, describing it repeatedly as LGBT rather than sexually explicit, which this book is gay clearly is. Now, I won't deny a chunk of the religious protesters are likely opposed more generally to LGBT books, regardless of whether they're highly sexualized. The Detroit Free Press reported at one meeting, quote, some of the placards held up read, keep your porno books to yourself, homosexuality, big sin, and if democracy matters, we're the majority. Here's more from the Washington Post. Quote, like other parts of the country, conservative Christians were the first to raise fears about books with LGBTQ content in Michigan School District, which serves the city of of Dearborn and part of the Dearborn Heights in the Detroit metro area, the Detroit Free Press reported. They then rallied the significant Muslim population in both cities to join them. All right, so that actually gives credence to what the dad said in his viral speech. This isn't about left or right. It's about parents who don't think these books are appropriate for teenagers and parents who are now reasonably panicked about the mindset that informs our education system, which is fighting to keep this book as gay and other titles in libraries. Interestingly, CARES Michigan organization has been supportive of the parent protesters, while the American Federation of Teachers has been supportive of the books. Reading through weeks of the coverage, I was reminded of a post from Colin Wright's substack, Reality's Last Stand, this week. It was a pretty nuanced rebuttal by Lisa Celyn Davis of John Oliver's recent Last Week Tonight show on trans issues. So while mocking his distract- detractors for getting facts wrong, John Oliver did very much the same. While pointing that out, Davis landed on a deeper point. She listed off what she sees as excesses in Republican anti-trans policies. But then she added, the Democrats, on the other hand, have passed laws that allow children to medically transition without parental consent, sent CPS after parents who don't socially or medically affirm their trans-identified kids, and attempted to criminalize parents who refuse pediatric gender medical interventions. I think it's safe to call these actions on both sides insane, which is a term Oliver uses several times, but never for the Democrats. So this is repeated in the media constantly as well. Parents have legitimate reasons to be furious about those books in libraries or about consent laws on transitioning, for instance. Who put those books in libraries? Who passed those laws? It was Democrats, as as Democrats in the left more broadly. As Davis wrote, a lot of people on the left are worried about the compelled speech of pronoun announcements and that the left's handling of this issue may cost us the election and with it, our democracy. Why not take that seriously? She was talking to John Oliver there. Well, back to the dad's point, because taking it seriously from the left either requires meaningfully challenging their priors or risking personal and professional blowback. By the way, it's easy to understand why. Genuine bigotry exists, and decent people want to protect others from it. But people are very upset about the culture right now, and they have legitimate reasons to be upset about it. You may disagree with them, but treating all these parents as bigots or opponents generally of LGBT books pushes us deeper into a hole. And the deeper we go into that hole, the more time we have to spend talking, the more time we have to spend talking about bizarre teen books than fixing our healthcare system. People aren't wrong to care about both.
5: We're joined now by Iranian-American journalist uh, Nagar Mortazavi to talk about the latest in the, uh, in the in with the protests in Iran. Nagar, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We had we had said we would also be joined uh, by by Odar Katebi. She's uh, she's running late. We're gonna we're still gonna talk with her later, and we'll post that post that video later. But in order to in order to get this segment up as part of today's show, we wanted to uh, make sure that we had time for it. So uh, you know, thank you thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And I, I wanted to start a little bit by talking about the unusual circumstances under which uh, you're you're joining us uh, this 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 week. Uh, you know, you you were in the news for a a, a bomb threat that was uh, targeted around a, a conference uh, in Chicago uh, where you were where you were speaking, um, and you've continued to receive. You know, significant threats. Can you? Can you? And you know, the uh, the, the title. I, I would. I don't know if you would call yourself an Iranian dissident, but in general, over the last several months, Iranian dissident has not been a very kind of safe occupation around the world, both in Europe and here in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. So, what what has been? What What has the last week been like for you?
3: Well, as you said, dissidents, journalists, activists. I'm I'm an exiled journalist, so I've been living in exile since 2009 from Iran, haven't been able to go back because of the pressure on me from the regime for my work. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, journalists, particularly female journalists, analysts, some academics, activists, have been receiving, it's been an ongoing trend of online harassment over the past years. It's been documented by multiple human rights organizations, particularly my colleagues who work in the Persian media sphere, BBC Persian, other Persian channels are also receiving a lot of this. And the the level has been um, increasing so much. There's been an uptick in the past four years with the protests. It uh, also, the irony is that we receive it from both ends. So we get smeared and attacked by the regime as being accused of mouthpieces of foreign governments, if we're U.S.-based, my colleagues at the BBC or friends at the BBC uh, being mouthpieces of the U.K. government, accused of being mouthpieces of the Europeans, and then by uh, interest groups in some opposition or exiles, uh, being accused as being a mouthpiece of the regime, so it both both and simultaneously attack us. And um, you know, I've I've been trying to do professional, nuanced reporting, journalism, analysis. At times, I've taken break from journalism. Have have worked uh, with advocacy organizations. Back into analysis now for a few years, and have been focusing on Iran U.S. iran relations for a few years. So I was I get invited on university panels and and shows like yours. Uh, frequently. And I was invited to speak at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Um, the event, because of the threat and the harassment I was getting and the Institute was getting, the event was moved online. Um, and then on the day of the event, which was supposed to be held online, uh, the, with, with the student newspaper, I wasn't there in Chicago, but with the student newspaper, the university newspaper, the Chicago Maroon, has reported was that the building or the Institute received a threat and they closed the building and the report says that they sent some students staff home. I also heard from the Institute that there were canine dogs present and um, the the event went on. We, we went ahead online, nevertheless, but under just a lot of threat and pressure. I'm grateful to the Institute for, Um, still going on with the event for supporting me for, for, um, continuing this event to the University of Chicago, the whole entire community was very supportive, but there was also, they received a lot of backlash and emails and there was a document circulating from an anonymous account online with a sample letter that they were urging, um, just anyone to send this letter to the university, and emails of the staff were circulated online, and they were getting bombarded with, with these emails and, and some calls. But I wasn't there, so I wasn't, I'm not. I don't have any uh, firsthand reporting of this, but this, the good work has been done by some student reporters of the university on the ground. And also I saw ABC Local and another local outlet in Chicago reporting on the threat um, that the institute received.
4: It's, it's always hard, I think, for Americans to—especially Americans that are reasonably skeptical of the media—to parse through and figure out, cut through the noise, figure out what, what actually is happening, what they need to know. So, Nagar, what do you think Americans—the you know, the average American voter needs to know about what is happening in Iran right now? What are, what is the, what are the big takeaways that people should be aware of from your perspective?
3: Well, there is, and this is, I want to again connect it to this story later. This is a byproduct of the brutality that's happening in Iran. A massive uh, amount of violence, brutal violence being committed by the state, by security forces, various different segments of the security forces. Human rights organ- organizations are documenting uh, dozens, tens, I think, near overpassing 100 protesters being killed by security forces, shooting with shotguns, with Uh, live rounds, sometimes even shooting at people unarmed who are running away. So from behind, uh, largely peaceful settings, very crowded settings. This is, uh, I think, what, what I saw in the Human Rights Watch report recently, and just unlawful use of lethal force. It's something that the regime has done in the past, but to crack down and suppress protests and dissent. In 2009, mass protests, state use violence to to crack down in 2019, essentially an iron fist. They they brought it down in a matter of days, if not weeks. There was a total internet blackout. Hundreds of protesters were killed. Thousands were arrested, many of them given very harsh sentences. And this time around, it's the same. We're seeing protesters being confronted by security forces, either picked up or killed. Um, Some activists and journalists have been Arrested um, uh, At least 40, I believe, journalists have been documented by the Committee to Protect Journalists who have been arrested, journalists, photojournalists um, who have been arrested. I've talked to some sources on the ground who are saying they're receiving threatening calls if they're political activists, if they're journalists, to tone it down, to not protest, to not engage in the online conversation. And they're threatening them, security forces. With arrest. So it's a violent, violent and brutal crackdown, and the chants on the street are also against the entirety of the regime, the supreme leader, the Islamic Republic, the corrupt leadership with underlying, you know, political, economic, social, cultural grievances, and at the core of it is also what I find significant is that it's a feminist uprising, it's a feminist revolution with the main slogan being woman life, freedom, and these iconic images of women and young girls leading many of these protests.
5: And so earlier this week, uh, we, had, we had a guest on, Satara Siddiqui, who, I, who you were saying that you're, you're familiar with, who's you know, more part of the conservative wing and more of a regime uh, supporter, though she you know, was, was willing to be critical of the, of the morality police. And the case that she was kind of making is that this is being overblown. Uh, by the by, the Western press that you know that in a lot of parts of the country you're, you're not even seeing you know significant protests uh, as you, as you walk around as you walk around the city. And I'm curious from from and basically your, that most women
4: are satisfied with the sort of moral order
5: that some are, that enough are yeah. that that it's not right. that it's not a, you, know, you know cut and dry black and white issue. And so I'm curious from your perspective, from the sources that you're talking to on on the ground in Iran, what is the energy level? Uh, of, of the protests, what is what are, kind of how, how big are they relative to 2019? Are they bigger today than they were uh, weeks ago? Uh, you know, what, what's their trajectory? How, you know, how, how would you describe it?
3: Well, this is seen by Iran watchers, many of us obviously are doing it from a distance, but as a serious um, crisis for the regime in a decade, the most serious rounds of mass protests, It spread to every single province in Iran dozens of cities, religious cities like Qom and Mashhad, uh, The protests were really huge uh, in Kurdistan, in Baluchistan, the ethnic areas where there's also uh, lots of discrimination and, uh, and suppression by the state against those communities over the years. Um, and also we're seeing a lot of women and girls essentially showing that they're fed up, that this is a watershed moment. Yes, there's also violent repression. There's a lot of brutality. I hear from sources there's a lot of um, security forces, plainclothes forces on the streets in major cities, so it's difficult to sustain and grow, but we also continue to see images of protests coming more in pockets, but still across the country. So, I think what these protests are showing, again, considering the level of brutality and the violence, which prevents a lot of people from from essentially braving uh, and uh, the bullets and risking their lives, because those who are staying on the street are essentially risking their lives. But What this is showing us is a crisis of legitimacy. We're seeing this chant of no to the Islamic Republic and no to the leaders and no to the system uh, on social media also, on, on a, among a lot of Iranians who may not be present on the street at the moment, but they, but they support the larger movement. We're also seeing acts of civil disobedience by women. Women were taking off the hijab, being in the public, ordinary citizens in a cafe. We have photos in it, uh, published and videos coming out of a grandma crossing the street, a girl having breakfast at a cafe, all without the hijab, which essentially is an act of civil disobedience. And also more high-profile people. There was an actress who appeared in a live interview inside Iran, who appeared in a live interview without the hijab, which was unprecedented. There was an athlete in Lazar Qabi, a rock climber, who appeared in an international competition officially on behalf of Iran uh, in an international competition without the hijab. So we're seeing a continuation of these pockets of protest, the legitimacy crisis and the saying no to the system, to the repression to the Islamic Republic by a larger population who is expressing it in other ways online through the media and also these acts of individual uh, civil disobedience by ordinary citizens and also prominent figures, celebrities, actors, athletes, um, and also uh, uh, these, these prominent figures who are joining the protests or showing solidarity and support to the protesters, say on their Instagram account, football stars, uh, film stars, filmmakers who are posting messages of solidarity, that's also part of the bigger movement. They may not be able to go on the street and join the protest, but when they post it to an Instagram with millions of followers, it gets shared and it goes viral, and that becomes part of the movement.
4: Hmm. And and obviously, you know, nobody can sort of snap their fingers and expect Iran to become a Western-style democracy overnight. But uh, Nagar, what are some you know what are some concrete things that you think should happen in the future um, to to satisfy some of the demands of people who are taking risks, um, clearly risks to their, their personal professional lives, uh, to to protest the regime.
3: Well, the core slogan of this feminist revolution is woman, life, freedom. And I think it encompasses the demands in three simple words. Women have been dealing with years of discrimination, of uh, double standards, of discriminatory laws and of state sanctioned violence, of violent enforcement of these laws. It starts with the dress code, but it's all over in family law, marriage, divorce, child custody, inheritance, in personal and Uh, professionalized women have to deal with this discrimination. It's also men, women and allies, women, young girls and allies who are coming out, essentially finding no other avenue for political change. The Islamic Republic has essentially um, shown a very rigid response and no other avenue for change for many of these people, millions of Iranians who, who think that the street is the only avenue where they can pursue in the form of these protests risking their lives to demand change. In the previous election, the presidential election, the last election last year, um, all moderate and reformist uh, candidates within the system, so what's considered moderate and reformist within the system, were disqualified, and the president is essentially seen by a big part of the population as a shooing candidate by the conservative who had the path cleared for him to become president. The parliamentary election the year before that, similar moderate reformist candidates were disqualified and essentially the, the core, the, as they call it, the hard core of the regime and the more militaristic and conservative and hardline core of the regime is, is consolidating power, is taking over all all aspects of power, uh, isolating their own, their own systems, reformers and moderates, and closing all avenues for change. So that's why you're hearing this chant of an end to the Islamic Republic, an end to the regime by people on the street, It's unclear how exactly that may materialize. I don't want to speculate one way or the other. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? But you're just hearing this um, fed up tone from a lot of Iranians that it's not just the mandatory hijab. It's not just the morality. Because sometimes even Iranians, my own friends, watch my interviews and they they think that I'm only talking about these issues as opposed to them wanting a, a change to the entire system. That's that's necessarily not the not the discourse here. It's difficult to speculate. I don't want to speculate as far as a crystal ball of what will happen, but we're seeing this as a watershed moment for many Iranians demanding an end to the entirety of this thing. They see it as a corrupt government, repressive a state, and also they see no other avenues for political change.
5: And if if the repression has brought the protests into just pockets of in in, in various areas, uh, you know, there's any epidemiology, as you know, to, to protests and they feed off of each other. The bigger they get, the more the, the, the more people then can join them because there's there ends up being some kind of anonymity and protection in, in a large crowd. If you're talking about smaller pockets of protests, then each individual person who goes out is much more vulnerable. You know, it's it's, it's a it takes it takes more courage to join, you know, some 20, 20 people sometimes than it does to join 200 Thousand people, and so what? What's what's been the effect on people who were kind of who who feel this way about the regime and have felt this way and were happy to join? You know, when when there when there are large crowds, what's the effect on people like that now that the crowds are getting smaller?
3: Well, it certainly has that fear effect. As you said, when people see someone next to them killed or shot or arrested, it does have that impact. Also, we're seeing, again, a lot of courage and bravery. So I want to applaud that. I'm in awe of the courage of these young girls, schoolgirls. I saw a video the other day of elementary schoolgirls, three elementary schoolgirls girls were running down the street chanting, women, life, freedom, and waving their scarf up in the air. So they took it off. Um, high schoolers. Um, the bravery has been incredible, but also the brutality has that impact. I also spoke to some sources on the ground who told me they've heard of ordinary protesters who were identified in protests either by security forces or through images, the filming of their um, of their themselves, and then had they had their homes raided overnight and arrested. So it's not only activists, it's not only prominent people, it's also ordinary protesters, anybody that shows any form of leadership, even in a small setting. So I heard about this one protester who was an ordinary person, but it seemed like she was leading the chant in one setting of like a dozen people around. And this gets picked up in the images, and then the home is raided at night and the person is arrested. So they're essentially trying to send the message also uh, to the rest, to the rest of the population, even to the rest of the protesters to stop this, that we're coming after you, that we have the capacity to identify you and, you know, the sources and the forces. And what we saw in 2019 was an immediate crushing of these protests. This time around, it hasn't been as immediate. And our, my reading and some other Iran analysts and reporting that was also reporting in the New York Times is that not the entire force has not been deployed yet, so this could get even worse than this, more brutal, more violent, and it has the effect of essentially either you pick people up, you arrest them, or you uh, threaten them and send them back home. So it does have that arrest. It did get the protests did get crushed in 2019, even though there were mass protests across the country. And, but the problem is when the grievance is not addressed, when the demands are not addressed, be it economic, political, social, cultural, just the hijab, morality police, or the entirety of the system, even if you send people back home, the next time around, they're going to come back with those grievances and an added layer. So in 2019, was the spark was an increase in uh, fuel prices. This time was the death in custody of this young woman. The time before that was an, was an election. There have been teachers joining, lawyers, uh, oil workers, laborers, uh, university students, each with their own pockets of grievances, but also this intersectional community coming together with a lot of overlap.
4: And, and Nigar, where can people follow your journalism and follow your work?
3: I have I'm uh, I have a website where I post. I'm an independent journalist, so I do a lot of interviews like this. I post it on my website, on Negar Tazavi. I also have a podcast. I host and edit the Iran podcast um, where we do weekly conversations about Iran, Iranian affairs that go beyond just the uh, headlines in the mainstream media and uh, have deeper conversations with experts. I'm also very active on Twitter, not on other social media. I have some presence, but on Twitter is my main place where I post my work, my interviews, and also my podcast.
4: Sounds and, great.
5: And Nagar's written for The Intercept, too.
4: There you go. <laughs> yes,
3: I
5: have. Yes.
4: Well, Nagar, thank you so much for your time and for your insights this morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We appreciate it. All
5: right. Well, that'll do it uh, for this CounterPoints Friday. That's right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for sticking around.
4: Yep. We hope you have a great weekend. Enjoy the wonderful fall weather. Hopefully, it's nice where you are. Uh, and we'll see you back here next Friday
1: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia
2: He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael.